Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday, so I'm looking at the yard sites and I see one probably you never heard of, most of you. Very, very interesting person uh, from the 18th century, which is my, one of my favorite centuries. And that's from David Pardo. Um, here you, de- who lived around 1720, 1798, something like that, all the way through the 1700s. Uh, I bet you most of you have never heard of him, even though he's a very important figure uh, for the students of rabbinic literature of a certain sort. I'll explain what I mean. Uh, this is somebody who lived most of his life in the Empire of Venice. Uh, Venice is a little city. I was there. That's the one in the water, as you know. And I've mentioned a couple times before with Zarya Figa and others that Venice was once a city-state republic which owned a lot of Carca, uh, including not only a chunk of Italy, north-eastern uh, Italy, but also had an empire of territory that it controlled all along the coastline of the Adriatic Sea, which is the sea in between Italy and and Greece, Italy and Yugoslavia. And uh, all those little territories were ports, and for a number of reasons, I won't go into too many details on a history class, the Venetians early on, the people of Venice, the Empire of Venice, established strongholds and fortresses, and Mamas controlled that whole area, all the way down to Greece, and at certain times they controlled Greece, and the island of Crete and Cyprus. Uh, which is remarkable for a stupid little city. And there were Jews, always, who lived in the Empire of Venice. <clears throat> now, uh, the Venetians were anti-Semitic, um, you know, things like that. Nevertheless, if a Jew lived in the Venetian territory, he was a subject to protection of the law, even though there were discrimination laws against the Jews. And without going into too many details... The Venetians, who controlled these places, always held them by force. And the local population didn't necessarily love the Venetians. And so the Jews are a safe group, you understand? They're not organizing any riots or any uh, uprisings against the Venice control. And so, outside of the city of Venice itself, where it was pretty strong anti-Semitism, you had very interesting, small but vibrant Jewish communities all up and down the Adriatic Mm -hmm. and into Greece, and into Cyprus and Crete and places like that, the Candia, they used to call it. And they even had Gedolim there, and from time to time yeshivas, and important contributions to Jewish literature, and important contributions to Torah literature. And most of this is kind of off the charts, except for people that know about it, specialists. And of these types, in my opinion, one of the two or three top Venetian rabbis ever, of which there were many, Woody wrote David Pardo, and I think most people who are knowledgeable would agree with that. So who is this person? Well, he's born in, in Venice in the 1700s. By that time, Venice was one to decline as a great empire, but still was there. It's hard for me to explain. You probably don't even know the map. 
But if you have any idea what Italy looks like, it's like across the sea, the narrow uh, Adriatic Sea from uh, what we call today Serbia and Yugoslavia and uh, Greece and Albania and those countries, all of which was for many hundreds of years the Ottoman Turkish Empire. The Turks controlled one-third of Europe, the Gansa Balkans. And was, you think of that giant area, and it rubs shoulders against the small, tiny territories of Venice. And Venice fought repeatedly with the Turkish Empire, war after war, century after century. And it's extraordinary that a tiny little nothing country like Venice, the way it looks to us today, fought and held off the Turks and sometimes beat them and sometimes were beat by them for centuries. I'm talking about the 1400s, the 1500s, the 1600s, the 1700s. It's, it's quite remarkable. And when they weren't fighting, they did a lot of business together. And the Jews were smack in the middle of all this. So this is a part of Jewish history most people are not so familiar with. These are the Sephardim. I mean, literally, the Jews that ran away from Spain and Portugal and ended up in the Balkans, which was under the Turkish Empire, uh, where they intermarried with the local Jews, the Romanio Jews, and usually took over their communities and established a whole zone of Sephardic Yiddishkeit, uh, traditional, old-fashioned, but not Ashkenazic, of course, of their own variety, with a lot of Ladino going on. And in some communities, the Yiddishkeit was pretty stark. And it's funny, because you go there today, it's like some stupid town in the Balkans, hardly any Jews left there. There might be an old synagogue to show to tourists or something like that, you know, some old lady left over. But it was a vibrant business prior to World War II. It's quite remarkable. A vibrant business. So imagine this kind of world that I'm endeavoring to describe to you. And uh, Venice be the capital city. Venice has always been a Malcolm Torah. It's also been a Malcolm of Hololos, right? I mean, that's the funny part about the history of Jews in Venice. There were uh, what, what you and I would call today small yeshivas, important Talmud Chachamim, smack in the middle of Las Vegas, of Caesar's Palace. That, that's how it goes in Venice, uh, as remarkable as that is. I'm not even talking about the big yeshiva that existed in Padua, you know, to the west of uh, Venice in the Venetian territory, which was a famous yeshiva. But in the Venice itself, and we have a whole line of famous rabbis who uh, served in Venice or studied there and uh, picked up a lot of Torah learning, uh, even though they're always fighting with their communities because how are you going to keep them down on the farm when you live next door to Las Vegas? That's a tough order. You know, I'm a shul rabbi. I wouldn't, like, I wouldn't want to be there and try to maintain a kolel next to Caesar's Palace. I mean, give me a break. But um, he was a young guy. He grew up, as they say, around 1720, 1718. That means he's growing up in the 1720s and 30s. Venice on decline. Uh, most people aren't that interested in intensive uh, learning anymore, but some are. Uh, this boy, David Pardo, who lost his father at a young age, was raised by a an uncle or something like that, was one of these kids that, you see, naturally took the learning. Sometimes you get lucky with a kid like that. He just happens to like it. And all of his life he was like, then his unbelievable masmid, and therefore he became a gadol. Uh, in his particular case, it's like a romantic story in the sense of historical romance because I think he was raised um, by a uncle or something like that, and uh, the uncle saw to it that when he's young he should learn with Tamir Chacham because he saw the kid was that type. Uh, but then I think the uncle died. I think it was an uncle or a cousin. And... Uh, he left the Yerusha, and the Yerusha was stolen from the young boy by unscrupulous apatrupsim, which can happen, unfortunately. And uh, as a result, he had to leave 
Venice, to go to a, a port city in the Empire of Venice, like I told you before. Split. That's the name of the town. You know, I'm not one of these rich people, but they go on these uh, Mediterranean uh, cruises, right? And a lot of them go start in South Italy or that kind of thing, the Mediterranean cruise. And one of the places they take you to is Ragusa and this place and that place and it's Palanto, uh, Split. And they'll show you the old synagogue over there. Well, th there were communities there, as I said before. If you go back to the 1700s, you would find the vibrant Yiddishkeit. Not gigantic, but nevertheless, an important community. It's a Sephardi community, and then formerly everybody's like from, you know, even though that varies. And this young guy, who already was a Gansa Talmud Chacham of his own, uh, had to leave because he was denied his uh, uh, Yerusha. Uh, he's broke. To become like a first-grade rabbi, a second-grade rabbi, something like that in this uh, community of Split. So he's a Venetian who's going to a Venetian uh, Kehillah. Okay? The local Ralph took him in, and he learned up a storm with him. And by the time he's, uh, you know, in his early 20s, shall we say, the reputation gets out there that this guy actually knows his stuff, and he starts to get shots and troops. Well, I mean, people start to send him from all over the Venice territories and the nearby Balkan territories, all kind of shots and aloha, and he becomes a major league posig. David Pardo is one of the big postkim and response writers of the 18th century, up with the Nodi Behuda and, and those type of people, even though most people haven't heard of him. And uh, the result is, becomes like a very important uh, person. Now, oh, I'm, I'll just try this uh, tiny bit to be clear. If you, I wish I had a map to show you. This is audio, not video. But if you look in a map, maybe you'll put it up on your uh, screen of Italy and the countries east of Italy, you'll see what they call a sea, S-E-A, the Adriatic, meaning Hadrian Sea. And uh, if you imagine in those days, there were all these little uh, Jewish communities on the other side of Italy. That whole area, other than that little coastal strip, was the, was the Turkish Empire. And so there was a lot of commercial intercourse all the time. Uh, a lot of people did business bringing stuff from the Venetian areas to the Turkish areas and vice versa. And naturally, Jews are smack in the middle of all that. And so, even though you might be on this side of the political border, but let me say you're like a Sephardi in the Sephardi world. And uh, guys like him will, will, will switch over. Sometimes they'll be rabbis in Venice communities, and sometimes they go 20, 30 miles away to the east and become a rabbi in a Sephardi community in the Turkish Empire. And it's all like the same culture, except that if you're Italian, you know a little bit more. And uh, that's what happens with him. So he sets up an important little yeshiva there. It's so Italian, little small yeshivas, some high-level learning. Imagine Russian yeshiva with five, ten guys, and he devotes all his time to the five, ten guys. It's not like a big yeshiva we have nowadays. We give a sheer call, you know, hardly know anybody. Here, the head guy is learning with you, like, full-time, and he turned out some very important Talmudim. And this is what he does in his uh, late 20s, his 30s, and his 40s. And he gets a big reputation, you know, after a while, uh, as a Chasha person, he eventually becomes, um, when he's around 50, uh, becomes the rabbi of the most important Sephardi community of the entire Balkans once upon a time long ago. Nobody even knows about th this fact, or one of the two important Balkan communities. When I say the Balkans, it's the countries, again, that you call today uh, Greece, Albania, uh, Macedonia, Bulgaria, mm -hmm. Serbia. My, you, know, you see where I'm going with all this? The whole big area. And uh, the two most, and, and, and imagine all Sephardim. I mean, descendants of the Jews from Spain and Portugal. And uh, he becomes the Rav in 1773 in Sarajevo, 
which is the capital of Bosnia. Now, today, what the heck is Sarajevo? It's a place, what all we know about is people kill each other there, <laughs> and which is true. My friends, before the Second World War, before Hitler came along, Sarajevo and Salonika, down in, in near Greece, were the two main centers of Sephardic Yiddishkeit, and they had very, if you went into the Jewish quarter, once upon a time, these places, it was, it was, it was like being in B'nai Brak or something. You, know, you could smell the Yiddishkeit everywhere, a lot of little uh, shuls and bismedrishes and little learning places and Sephardic-type uh, religious institutions. Uh, a lot of Ladino, like I said before. It is these communities that they made the Mayam Lois for. And he becomes the rub over there. And again, he became a very famous person in his time as the rub of Sarajevo. I just happen to remember, because uh, I remember reading in the Simchas Torah book uh, by that guy uh, Avram Yari, which is an excellent book, History of Simchas Torah, which is, of course, a made-up holiday for his all kind of customs that attached themselves to it down the centuries, and uh, he had to deal with the question that they hire a Gentile band to play during the Hakafas and during the uh, uh, walking of the Chassan Torah and Chassan Breshis from their house to the Shul and vice versa with torchlight parades, and the whole question whether you can use Geisha bands or musicians on Yontif is dealt with with him as like a very typical type of situation. 18th century type child you get in these, in these kinds of uh, areas. they call Balkan Teshuvot. Teshuvot is the come from the Balkans. Uh, there's a professor somewhere, I forget his name, was in Ohio, who wrote a book a couple years ago, put it out in English, where he dealt with all kinds of questions that come from this kind of world, uh, which most of us, uh, Sephardic type, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Ashkenazic Jews, are not really uh, so familiar with. Let me, let me put it that way. It's a whole world... Uh, in there, and uh, within this framework, he becomes a very big person. Now, here's where I want to go with this. I'll just finish up a little bit more. After a while in Sarajevo, he moved to Livorno, which is another very important Sephardic community in Italy, on the uh, western side, facing the opposite direction. That was the richest uh, Jewish community. Here he met the Chita. Uh They quarreled, but I think they also married each other. You know, they became a Chutonim. And he got in contact with other big Sephardic rabbis that he met over there. And make a long story short, he moved to Eretz Yisrael, made Aliyah, and he lived out his last years in Yerushalayim mm-hmm. as some kind of Rosh Hashiva in the Sephardic elite of, uh, of ancient Jerusalem or Jerusalem 18th century, which was a growing community. That's a, a, a topic I've uh, spoken about in some of the Scholar Residences. I plan to give a talk on the evolution of the Sephardic community very remarkable story in the late 18th century in, uh, when I'm in London. I expect to be in London in early July, the first Shabbos there. Um, so uh, <laughs> if you're in London, you can come by and listen and find out. The point is, now I'm going to get to the re- real reason I chose him today, because this is just an interesting biography, but there are a lot of them that are somewhat similar. Uh, he's from Venice. He's Italian. He's 18th century. That means don't be surprised if he's a Moscow. But what does the word Moscow mean? What does the word Moscow mean? It doesn't mean what you think. I define Moscow, and I've given lectures on this, as anybody who uh, is into anything other than Gamar, Gamar, Gamar. Uh, you could be real from be into that. Uh, but if you're interested in anything other than Gamar, 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 and I'll throw in Shulchanar, 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 then you're a Moscow. So, you know, if you're like the Malbim who's into Tanakh, that makes him Moscowic. Or same sort of voice. Now these people aren't masculine, obviously. Obviously, in the non-from way, the way people usually think of the word masculine, 
That's my point. I'm trying to enlarge your horizons a little bit. You understand? That Haskalah and Maskil means you have some, somewhat broader horizons than the extremely narrow uh, focus of yeshivish, yeshivish, yeshivish. Now, David part is like this, but not in ways that you imagine. I'll tell you what I mean. Uh, he published a lot of Sfarim. The most uh, important of which lie in the, in, in the following area. He concentrated, he wrote many books, but he concentrated on those parts of the Shas that nobody pays any attention to. Okay? Not the Yerushalmi, but uh, the Tosefta and the Sifri. So let me explain. I don't know how much everybody listening is knows. How can I possibly know that? But when we talk about the Gemara and all the rest of it, you're talking about a phenomenon of a set of texts. Right? We talk about the Talmud. That's a, a set of texts which appeared over several centuries. Okay? If you want to get any idea of what I'm talking about, a visual, a lot of you might have access to, uh, what do you call it, the Art Scrolls, Yamda uh, de Pombadisa. I bet you some of you have seen that. And uh, if you ever, I always send this to my students. If you ever happen to be able to get a hold of that book, yeah, for, uh, History of Jewish People, Yamda de Pombadisa, you open to page 107, 107, you'll see a little chart which shows you what he called Midrashic Allahic works. These are the works of the Tanayim Amran. When we talk about the Talmud, we mean nothing other than the books that were published by the Tanayim Amran, or at least about them, in other words, in which they're the players. And so, um, a lot of Shiva guys just know there's a Gemara, and they know some other stuff out there. And if you're a regular Shiva person, all you do is learn Gemara with Rashi and Tosas and other Rishonim Achronim. Uh, very few people, as you know, ever get into Yerushalmi, although that may possibly change in recent times with the art school Yerushalmi coming out, some of my friends working on it. Uh, and I'm sure in Israel you're going to have the similar phenomenon where people are trying to popularize Yerushalmi, but it's going to be a long way from introducing Yerushalmi into the Yeshiva curriculum. That, in my opinion, is not going to happen. Nevertheless, it is possible to go not just to Bavli, but Yerushalmi, and you've heard of that. And some of the great Gedolim down the centuries were that type. But there are other things as well. Uh, the Talmud, broadly speaking, is composed of two layers, A and B. The first layer is that produ- of the literature, the books, produced by the Tanoim. And the second layer is the books published or produced by the Amaroim. The first one takes you up more or less to the year 200, approximately, because we have no finality, we don't have any original Gomorrahs. And that's the time, up to the year 200, approximately. And then, between 200 and, let's say, 500, approximately, that's the Amaroim. So what do we have from the first group, and what do we have from the second group? I'll go backwards. From the Amaroim, all we have is the Bavli and Yerushalmi. That's big, but those are the two books that are published by the Bavli and Yerushalmi. Okay? That's what we know. Uh, what do we have from the Tanoim? It's a little bit more complex. Not much, but a little bit. You have the Mishnah. Now, everybody's heard of the Mishnah. But then you have something called the Tosefta, and you and you called Medrash Halacha. Not Medrash, not the story Medrashes, but the Medrash Halacha. The Michilto on Shmos, the Sifra on Torah's Kanim, and the Sifri on Bamid Ben Dvarim. Again, the Michilto on Shmos, the Sifra on Vayikra, sometimes Rashi calls it the, the Torah's Kanim, and uh, the Sifri uh, on uh, Bamid Ben Dvarim. Most people don't even know this exists, and if they do, they never look it up. Why would they? Uh, what you can do if you're at all interested in this, the easy way is you get the Malbim and the Chumash. The Malbim is actually a commentary for his own reasons on the Michalta, the Sifra, and the Sifri. But usually you don't uh, do that. Now, let me get this straight for those who don't talk about. 
These are Tana Rabbanans quoted in the Gemara all the time. A lot of times when the Gemara quotes something, it's either from the Mechilta, the Sifra, and the Sifris, and it's, it's often introduced with the formula Tana Rabbanim. Then there's another book, which is really a Cinderella out there, and that's the Tosefta. You can find, not Tosefus, I want to be clear, I know people get it mixed up. Tosefus is something written in the 1100s, the Tose, by uh, the successors of Rashi in France. The Tosefta was a book written a thousand years before that, at the time of Yudha Nasi, we think. And there are traditions about it, but it's unclear. And, it, and it's in the back of the Gemaras, so if you go all the way to the back, you'll see the Tosefta. Very few people actually get into it. It's not something you come across in Yeshiva. Rather, what you do come across in Yeshiva is the following. In the regular Gemara, the Talmud Bavi that we learn, the Gemara, if you look on the side, will sometimes, fairly often actually, quote what you call a Brisa, but really it's a Brisa from the Tosefta. Brisa simply means a rabbinic statement, and uh, Tosefta is a whole collection of them, a particular collection. So Rabbi Yudha Nasi took one particular collection, and he called it the Mishnah, the Mishnah, Mishnahis, and then someone else, we don't know exactly who, took another collection of these Brises, I'm using Bryce in a broad way, and, uh, and called it the Tosefta. Now, under, this is a fascinating subject, because the Gemara itself is engaged in the enterprise at its central core of comparing and contrasting the different uh, Tanaitic texts. Notice, what did Amorim do in the Gemara at the core? It's not the only thing they do, it's a core thing they do. What they'll do is they'll say, you know, the Mishnah says this and this halacha here. But what about this Brisa there, that Brisa there? Brisa, my friends, is coming from the Tanaim. So, to simplify, uh, to simplify, imagine the Mishnah says that something is kosher. But hey, there is a Brisa, a Mechilta or a Sifra or a Sifri or a Tosefta, and says it's Treif. And then the Gemara will try to reconcile it one way or the other, you know, in various ways, dialectically or otherwise. And uh, that's like a core element of what the Gemara is. Now, the Amorim will go off on this, and they'll have tangents, and they'll do their own thing, as we all know. But at the very basic of it, you're trying to find out what is the din, and I can't simply go by the Mishnah, because as they say, Tanoi Mevaleolam, if you just pass them straight the Mishnah, uh, cold without any reference to anything else, you're going to get it wrong. And the reason is we don't automatically simply paskin out of Mishnah, we paskin out of the totality of the Tanaitic texts, which means the Mishnah, the Tosefta, the Mechilta Sifra and Sifri, and something called Brises in general. That's the real meaning of Brises, in which they're out there, but they're not included in any other book. I hope I haven't confused you. So imagine a world of, uh, let's say, one, two, three, four, about five or six books. Uh, book number one is called the Mishnah. Book number two is called the Tosefta. Book number three is called the Mechilta. Book number four is called the Sifra. And book number five and six is called the Sifri. So these are six books. But then there are other prices out there that are not located in any of these books. See, I call it a book on purpose because a book means all the information is contained between one cover and the other cover. Okay? If you tell me that you read War and Peace, it's a certain type of thing. And then, you know, you tell me, and in War and Peace, they hold, told the whole story about Franklin Roosevelt. I said, no, they didn't. I read the whole book. It's not in there. But in addition to those books, we all know that Gemara sometimes will quote from what they call Barisis, which means rabbinic statements that are not found in these books. But if the Gemara quotes it, you figure they know what they're talking about, so you have to include them in the discussion. That's the short and dumb version of the subject. And uh, traditionally speaking, the average student of the Gemara says, I guess, whatever the Gemara quotes is the part of the stuff I need to know. And beyond that, I don't have any time, I'm not interested in all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there are inquiring minds who want to know 
if these are things for the Tanoim, for the holy Tanoim, and the Ramamas from the time of Yunan Nasi, so this is like a, a, a very elemental part of the Torah Shabbat How can we neglect it and, 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 and confine it, you know, to a corner and only be read by a few weirdos? I mean, you know, how does, how does that work? And so every once in a while you will find a Godel who is a little off the beaten track, in addition to knowing the Gemara and all the rest, of course, will preoccupy themselves with these unknown, relatively unknown texts. Uh, I'm thinking off the top of my head of the famous statement by the Sefer HaChsidim of Yudah Chassan 1200s, where he says, there's two types of mace mitzvah. There's the mace mitzvah that we all think about in the Gemara, that you see a dead body lying around unattended. But then there's something called the mace mitzvah, the kind of mitzvah that nobody pays attention to and leaves alone. You should undertake to do it because nobody else is doing that mitzvah. So similarly, I would call it dead Torahs, you know, or dead uh, Sfarim. They're dead Sfarim in that they're lying around, nobody's preoccupying themselves with it, and therefore that's something you should undertake to do. But very few actually do that. Very few actually do that. So to make a long story short, Rabdava Parda became uh, really unique and famous by preoccupying himself and publishing a huge commentary on the Tosefta. It's called Chazdei David. It's around today. If you have the regular Gemaras in the back, they have pieces of his commentary, because it wasn't all published in his lifetime, and in the Vilna Shas, and so you have fragments of it. If you wish to, you can do what I did, which is you can buy the whole set that came out about 20 years ago, I don't know, 25 years ago, something like that. Maybe even longer, in which you have the whole Chazdei David, in which he goes Tosefta by Tosefta, and trying to explain it. Now, this is a hugely fascinating subject that I don't have the time to go into in a, a tiny podcast over here that's always going over time more than I wish to. But just to give you a tiny bit of an idea of what I'm talking about, the Gemara will often you'll find the following situation. Think, think, Listen closely. Let's say, for, I'm making this up, but listen closely. You could find, let's say for argument's sake, a machlok is between two tanoim, Rabbi Kiva and Rabbi Tarfin, about a certain food. Let's say for argument's sake, Rabbi Kiva says it's kosher, Rabbi Tarfin says it's treif. That's how it's presented in the Mishnah. So if I'm reading that in the Mishnah, we have a rule, Rabbi Kiva mechavero, if it's Rabbi Kiva versus one other person, so the halacha finally follows Rabbi Kiva. Because otherwise, how are you supposed to know how to paskin at the end of the day if it's just two opinions out there? How do you know which one is the governing one? That's a good question I'm asking. You know, I know the Gemara is full of opinions. How do you know which one you go by? So if certain rules clearly developed over time, that's another discussion. And one of them is halacha Rabbi Kiva So since you have Rabbi Kiva on the one hand saying it's kosher, Rabbi Tarifin saying it's treif, we go like Rabbi Kiva. That's how the Mishnah reads, which means that's how the editor of the Mishnah, which is Rabbi Nasi, Rabbi didn't write the Mishnah, he edited the previously existing Mishnahs. So the text we have now is what finally left the hand of Rabbi Yudanasi. He didn't originate it, but he's the last one who touched it up. For those who are interested in the subject, read the Igeris of Shuragon, which is uh, Shuragon a thousand years ago trying to explain this whole business. And uh, if you can't read it, wait a few months, Dark Scrolls coming out with my translation of it. <laughs> uh, but I'm serious about that. Anyway, so you hold that, hear what I said. So if I just read the Mishnah, I come out and I say, Rabbi Kiva's read is kosher. Then I open up the Tosefta. And very often you find the following. Concerning this particular food, Rabbi Kiva says kosher, and Rabbi Tarfin, and Rabbi Gamliel, and Rabbi Lazar, and Rabbi Lazar, and Rabbi, Rabbi Yishu says treif. Whoa! What happened over here? I thought it was just one-on-one. Turns out it's not. It's one against five. 
And we don't see the Tosefta as lying. So it's a historic fact then that there were five people, five Tanaim who said it's treif. In that case, the rule switches. Rabbi Akiva, Mechavirav, Dalach is not like Rabbi Akiva. So now it's treif. So wait a minute. Why did Rabbi Yunan Nasi, the editor of the Mishnah, omit these other opinions? It is possible, but highly unlikely, that he never heard about it. Rather, he had an agenda. This is what Shirgon said. He had an agenda. Rabbi Yunan Nasi wanted the Paskin like Rabbi Kiva. He had his reasons. He's greater than us. And he said, I'm going to present in a form that is one versus one. But the Talmud, the Gemara of the Amorim, won't let him get away with it. And the Gemara will immediately say, You say it's just one against one. But what do you do with this Tanya over here or this Tanya over there, in which they present a much more complex and variegated case? And then the Gemara is going to have a full discussion. That's exactly what the Gemara is. You won't let them get away with these kinds of uh, editorial uh, omissions or extras or things like that. And so you see, the Tosef then becomes an extremely important uh, document for if you really care about what the Tanaim were actually uh, saying. And uh, sometimes, it happens very often, that we have girsa problems. Meaning, the way the Gemara quotes the Tosefta is not identical with when I look in the back of the Tosefta, the words are somewhat different. And how did that happen? Is there mistakes or not mistakes? So there's an entire, I'm simply trying to tell you, dear listeners, there's an entire little universe out there of Tosefta freaks, in which people are very preoccupied, and it's a very high uh, mm-hmm. a scholarly endeavor to understand the Tosefta, this huge text, uh, which is almost about the size of the Mishnah, roughly speaking, and uh, parallel to it, um, and understand what exactly is a Tosefta. Is it another version of the Mishnah that didn't, that didn't get the attraction? Is it meant to be, like the name suggests, supplementary to the Mishnah, but doesn't exactly read like that all the time? There's a huge set of questions of what exactly Tosefta is and what is its relation to the Mishnah, and what is its valence in Halacho. Who's into this? You're know, probably saying, Rabbi Katz, you're boring me, right? Who's into this kind of stuff? Yechide Skula, right? Very few people. Uh, but it means that, <laughs> so you're in Moscow in the sense I just said, you're super into Gemara, but Gemara, and the little vinkel is on the side and left. These are the writings of the Tanayim I'm right. I'm not talking about English books over here, right? Talk, I'm not talking about the movies. You're talking about Mamish, the core of the Shas of the Talmud itself, and Rosh Barishin Shabachabur is Rodel Pardo because he wrote a massive commentary on the Tosefta. It's not easy to read, and I'll be, I have to be confess over here. I look at it from time to time, and I don't find it personally so helpful, because he has a certain style. But nevertheless, he's clearly, I can tell he's clearly a trailblazer. And uh, what's really interesting is that he did this in the 1700s, and starting in the 1800s and the 1900s, there's been something of a follow-up, although we're not there yet. But there's been something of a follow-up, people working on the uh, Tosefta and trying to make it, put it out there uh, in a way that's clear to the public. Um, in, uh, you, you, you meet in the 19th century, which is the 1800s, you already started to get modern scholarships, so people want to know what's the right gearses. And uh, in general, when it came to this business of getting the right text, which is a good thing, mostly it was conservative Jews that preoccupied themselves with this, because that's part of the modern, what they call Wissenschaftler's Judentums movement, in which you try to apply Western academic uh, standards to the study of Jewish texts, which aren't necessarily a bad thing. So just to give you a tiny idea of what I'm talking about, uh, if you ask me, what do you know about the Tosefta today? Uh, the short answer is, well, what's the oldest one? <laughs> you know, 
uh, let's face it, we don't have an old Gemara, it doesn't exist. Old, 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 we don't have an old Mishnah, it doesn't exist. We wish it did, but it doesn't. All this stuff is relatively new from the Middle Ages. When it comes to the Talmud Bavli, the best edition, what, 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 the only thing you can do, since I don't have an autographed copy from a Bayan Rava, <laughs> you're not going to get that. So the only thing you can do is, can you find a good, uh, uh, what shall I say, cipher who did a good job, a clean job, of copying out the whole Talmud Bavli or Sechter or something like that? Well, the answer is, there's something called the Dikduke Sefer from the Munich Codex, which they found in Munich in the early 1800s, which turned out to be what seemed to be the best set of girses on the Talmud Bavli. Well, what about the Tosefta? Uh, there are basically two manuscripts out there that are really old, that seem to be the best editions of it. One's in Vienna, they're both in Germany, because some uh, book collectors and princes got a hold of this, and for art purposes, you know, collected it, so uh, uh, what are you going to do? One's in the Austrian uh, National Library of Vienna, which goes back to the 1200s. One's in Erfurt, which is in Bavaria, in uh, Thuringia, it's in the belly button of Germany, believe it or not. And uh, actually, it's located now in Berlin. And also goes back to the 1200s. So here you have a, a complete edition of the Tosefta from the time of the Rajba. That's as good as it gets. You understand? That's as good as, even though it's a thousand years earlier, that's as good as it gets. And which is, and they don't agree all the time, and which is the right one. There was a guy, Zuckermandel, that's a real guy's name. Moshe Shmuel Zuckermandel, who was a conservative rabbi, who uh, knew how to learn, you know, more or less. And uh, he devoted his whole life into publishing the Tukamendel edition of the Tosefta, fat volume, scholars have it, in which he said, this is the right Girsa. Um, some agree, some don't agree with it, there are problems with it. Uh, in the 20th century, the big person that threw himself into working in the Tosefta, young Lila, was Saul Lieberman, uh, Professor Lieberman, who was at the Jewish Theological Seminary, but, you know, before that, was uh, a big, he was a big gun. You know, back from Lithuania, it was a, a big Talmud Chacham, and uh, who ended up in the, by the conservative uh, because he couldn't get a job at Hebrew U. And uh, he really made, if I remember his story correctly, he wanted to really do the Ushami. But as he went through the Ushami, he said, You can't understand the Ushami until you do the Tosefta first. So naturally, he devoted like 30, 40 years to the Tosefta, and by the time he was ready to do the Ushami, he died. You know, I mean, he was an old man. So uh, this is not uncommon in Jewish history. I'm simply trying to let you know that the world of the Tosefta exists, and uh, I would say the main person, or the first of the main people connected with it was Rodobe Pardo, who was mm-hmm. a Venice rabbi, a tremendous gun, wrote Charles and Chuvis. Uh, I can't help but throw this in. I remember seeing, he has a safer, is it the Chuvis or is it on your, your and Dead commentaries? He's the only one I know who actually has an explanation why the Yekis keep three hours. Uh, he doesn't refer to the Yekis, but he says, why do they keep, you know what I'm talking about, no, it's three hours after Fleshik. Uh We all have heard of six hours. If you know the Shulchan Aruch, you've heard of one hour, like the Dutch. Uh, we all know the <laughs> Reformer Conservative wait zero, but uh, usually it's six hours, right? Uh, where you get three hours. And I was told Rav Shah himself didn't know where it comes from. The, uh, it's a Shoshana Madov, one of, one of his farm, uh, escapes me the name, uh, one, one of his farm, uh, what do you call it? Uh, he, he gives a whole explanation why he thinks it's three. I mean, it's not so hard to understand. It's what, from meal to meal back in the ancient times. Uh, I'll throw in one more name because I can't leave this out. Another big person in the 20th century, moving from somewhat similar motives, 
was, of course, the famous Rabbi Cheskel Abramsky, who's uh, <laughs> who was no conservative Jew, uh, one of the big Talmud Chum. Rabbi Chaim Brisker, I think I read this. He was a Talmud of Rabbi Chaim Brisker, and under Shulchan, Chaim Brisker told him, "You want to do something that'll be unique? Uh, do the uh, Tosefta." You hear what I said? Rabbi Chaim told him this, Mister Learning in the uh, Gemara, because he said nobody else is into this, and and that'll be an area for you to plow through. Again, I have his savory Chazon Yeteskel on a Tosefta. I use it from time to time. It's also not 100% helpful, I've found. But that's just my, it's, that's me, you know. It's not a problem with that. I, I haven't found it helpful. But uh, there's still work to be done. Uh, I, I can't help but forbear to tell you this. I was in Yushalayim a couple years ago, and I went farm hunting in, the, you know, Gula, Meisharm, and all those haunts. And... Uh, I'm an Akutis person. I happen to like Akutis. That's one of my Mishagasin. And to my utter shock, I see it as a three volume to Sefta Ol Manukud. I said, What is this? Where the heck does this come from? And then, if I understand correctly, I'm reading, and it goes like this You know, Ramir Shabir made a Daf Yomi. And I think the Ger Rebbe made a Yerushalam Yomi. And somebody else made a Mishnayis Yomi program. And so the Breslovers want something also. So the Breslovers. Uh, which means the Yerushalmi Breslovers, they came up with a, a Tosefta Yomi. I kid you not. So in order to facilitate the average Breslov type guy from uh, for doing this, uh, you know, so they put Manuka the, the, on the Tosefta. I haven't seen it anywhere else except in some, you know, flea-bitten uh, shop in uh, somewhere in the back of Gula, some, one of those places. But uh, who knows? We're now in the 21st century, so it's about 300 years or a little more since Dove Pardo died. Uh, there's still a lot of work to do to put out a nice edition of Tosef that would be useful for you and I. Uh, if there are any big patrons out there, the art scroll is always looking for new projects. You understand? And instead of coming out now with the Tosefus, which is fine too, imagine if they'll come out one day with a Tosefta, according to art scroll, the rest of it. There is uh, plenty of work to be done over here. And when they do, I hope they will put in, I'm sure they'll put in a proper acknowledgement of the great of David Pardo. Uh, so he should become less um, unknown uh, because he certainly deserves a great deal more. He also did the same thing on the Sifri, but my time is up. I am, I'm wasting too much time. I'm, I'm taking up too much time with this anyway. Maybe another time I'll talk about his uh, edition of the Sifri. If you're interested, you can go and pursue it on your own. Have a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.